Tibet, June 8th, 1924. Two mountaineers, schoolteacher George Lee Mallory and Oxford student Andrew Sandy Irvin are spotted just 800 vertical feet from the summit of the north base of Mount Everest. If they reach the top, they will become the first people to stand on the summit of the tallest mountain on earth. In his pocket, George Mallory carries a photograph of his wife, Ruth. He has promised her that he will place it on top of the mountain should he reach the summit. Suddenly, clouds roll in. Both Mallory and Irvin disappear from sight. At the centre of that climb, perhaps the greatest climb of all time, was Irishman Dr Richard Hingston. From RTE Documentary on One in Ireland, this is The Lost Mountaineers. You can't underestimate their achievements um, to do what they did, when they did, with the equipment they'd had, I think was uh, truly remarkable. It's June 2023, 99 years later, and I've come to Richard Hingston's hometown of Passage West, County Cork, to find out more about him and to see if his old diary can help shed some light on a mystery that has endured for almost a century. Were George Mallory and Andrew Irvin the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest, 29 years before Sir Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay in 1953? This is the land here. You can see your house would have been facing onto the railway line and out into what is known as French's Bay. This is Jim Murphy. Jim grew up across the road from Richard Hingston and knew him personally. Hingston was the doctor and naturalist on Mallory and Irvin's 1924 British expedition to Mount Everest. Hingston kept a detailed diary of everything that happened on the expedition when Mallory and Irvin disappeared into the clouds. I lived, I was born a hundred yards from Horsehead across the road and um, growing up, my father and my uncle used to tell me about Major Hingston, about Everest, that's what they knew. And every year during the summer he'd take out tents and he said that they were used in Everest and the local kids in there would be up in around it and show us around. According to Jim, Major Hingston, or Richard as he was known locally, was very well liked in Passage West. However, he was a quiet and kindly man not given to discussing his exploits in public. Tell me about the, the tents in the garden. Where did you, where uh, were they? It would have been out here, being the front here, he'd have the tents out. And what uh, did you do? Ordering and being around and he'd be showing us when putting pegs and everything on the tent. He said they were part of Everest and uh, these expeditions around the, uh, around the world. I know he was a gentleman. And uh, it was sad, I suppose, in a way, that he wasn't someone that stood up blowing his trumpet around the area. Originally born in London, Richard Hingston moved to Passage West as a child to be brought up by his aunt. He graduated as a doctor from UCC in 1910 and went on to join the Indian Medical Service in the British Army. However, it was in the Himalayas where Hingston would eventually find himself as part of Mallory and Irvin's 1924 expedition. He immediately left and joined the Indian 
medical service, uh, which um, I suppose uh, would be through the British Army running the Indian Medical Service, and he came worked in various hospitals around there. And while uh, while he was there, he got the interest in natural history, and because he got then the job as the uh, medical um, officer, the doctor for the um, mapping the Himalayas in 1913. Since Everest was first discovered to be the world's tallest mountain in 1856, there had been two failed attempts by the British to scale it, in 1921 and in 1922. By 1924, they were determined that they would succeed. In 1920, they finally got permission, after a lot of trying, to to stage two expeditions to Everest. One would be a reconnaissance and the second one would be a, a, an attempt. And, and that's exactly what happened. This is Mick Conifrey, author of several books on Mount Everest. Mallory was, consi- was one of the sort of known climbers of his era. But you have to kind of imagine this was a tiny world, you know. A lot of the mountaineers of the pre-war era had been killed in the First World War. People who'd been agitating to get to Everest before the war were dead. Um, there was nobody with any Himalayan experience. You know, n- nobody really had been there. And uh, Mallory was a member of the Alpine Club, which was the main climbing club, and he was known as, uh, you know, a strong young climber. But really, there wasn't a big gene pool. George Mallory was born the son of a vicar. He showed an interest in climbing from an early age and at one stage climbed Mount Brandon in County Kerry. He also showed a keen interest in political affairs in Ireland. Uh, well, Mallory was um, he was the son of a vicar from Birkenhead, um, close to Liverpool. Um, he had a very conventional middle-class childhood, uh, went to public school, then went to Cambridge... Um, and then after Cambridge, he became a school teacher, first of all. But he was a bit, a bit of a kind of rootless guy. Um, like most people of his generation, he was pulled away to the First World War, where he was an artillery officer. After the war, he came back and resumed briefly his uh, um, school teaching. Um, and um, when he came back from the war, he, for example, he, he at one point tried to work for the League of Nations, which was the equivalent of the United Nations now. He, he even actually went to Ireland uh, um, in 1920, I think it was, at the height of the, the uh, uh, you know, with the black and tans in town, at the height of the war, and, uh, because he, he said he wanted to see it for himself. The 1924 mission to climb Everest was full of experienced climbers and military men, and Richard Hingston was personally selected to be the group's medical officer and naturalist. Hingston would provide medical support and study the flora and fauna of the area, as well as the effects of altitude on human beings. Hingston uh, was the team doctor and the team naturalist. Um, and, uh, but he, he was brought out as the expedition doctor. He'd been working in Iraq at the RAF hospital. He was very interested in altitude and and wanted to, to kind of see how people would perform. He insisted on doing tests on them occasionally, which irritated them, as you can imagine. Alongside Hingston, the 12-strong climbing party included George Mallory, as well as a young Oxford student named Andrew Irvin, or Sandy to his friends due to his shock of blonde hair. Sandy Irvin was a brilliant rower, 
and worked on the oxygen sets used for the expedition in his dorm room in Merton College, Oxford. I've travelled to Oxford to meet his great-niece, the author and historian Julie Summers. Sandy was working on the oxygen set. Do you remember he was refurbishing the oxygen set uh, and he was, he was up in, in these rooms and there's a marvellous photograph of him um, smoking a pipe and pouring over the oxygen drawings, which is really quite, quite moving, actually. So, so it's, it's very special to be in this quad. Julie is showing me some of Sandy's personal belongings that were left behind at Mallory and Irvin's last camp on the mountain. She has donated these to Merton College, Oxford. Right, so this is the... Um this is the diary, and I, this has been at Merton since, I think, something like 1963. And it's just, it's, it's, very, it's very moving because, you know, he wrote that he was, this is now he's on the mountain and he had a headache um, and then he was touched by the sun. Um, I think one of the things that they really didn't understand in the 1920s was the need for hydration. Um, it's a really big problem on the mountain and they need, you need to drink litres and litres of water and they didn't understand that. Um, so he, he's often referring to a, a headache. Um, he had a terrible night with wind and snow. I don't know how the tent stood it, he wrote. Very little sleep and about two inches of snow over everything in the tent. Pretty, pretty grim, really, isn't it? So on the 5th, his last entry says... My sore face gave a lot of trouble during last night. He had he was one of the only ones who didn't he didn't grow a beard, so he shaved, and and that meant that when he got sunburn, it was terrible. And then he when he's putting the oxygen mask on his face, it hurt hurt a lot. So he wrote, um, "My sore face gave a lot of trouble during last night. Some of us still very exhausted. It has been very trying for everyone with freezing air temperature and a top of 120 in the sun and terribly strong reflection of the snow." My face is perfect agony. I've prepared two oxygen apparatus for our start tomorrow morning. That's it. Last entry. Wow. Oh, no. It's quite moving, isn't it? And, I mean, if, for a young man to say my face is perfect agony, that's got to be a pretty uncomfortable experience, really. George Mallory had been part of the two earlier failed attempts to climb Mount Everest in 1921 and 1922. The earlier expeditions had been plagued by both bad weather and bad luck. And by 1924, Mallory was determined to succeed. He couldn't accept not being the first to reach the summit. 1924 was going to be different. And Mallory was confident in his colleagues, in particular Richard Hingston. Writing to his wife Ruth from Darjeeling, en route to Everest, Mallory enthused about the team doctor from County Cork. Really, it is an amazingly nice party altogether. One of the best is Hingston, our medical officer. An Irishman a quiet little man and a very keen naturalist. Hingston, Mallory and the rest of the group made their way to the Himalayas from various parts of the world. Hingston from Iraq and Mallory and Irvin from England. They arrived in Darjeeling on March 7th, 1924 and began the long march to their base camp in the Rongbuk Valley, right at the foot of the Great Mountain, arriving there on May 11th, 1924. After two months trekking towards the slopes of Everest, the party had just one goal on their minds, to be the first to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Hingston stayed behind at base camp to provide medical assistance if needed, as the climbing attempt was to be made. The team built several smaller camps further up along the route to the summit to rest in and acclimatise as they attempted to reach the top. With everything in place, Mallory, determined not to let the mountain beat him and feeling this truly was his last chance, set off for the summit with Andrew Irvin as his climbing partner. They both carried the oxygen sets that Irvin had worked on in Merton College, Oxford. 
Fellow expedition member Noel O'Dell was to follow them in support, starting later, and remaining a few thousand metres below them. Before all three men left camp, Noel O'Dell took a picture of Mallory and Irvin as they prepared their gear and strapped on their oxygen tanks. Mallory also took a camera with him so that he and Irvin could take a picture on the summit, while in his pocket he carried the picture of his wife Ruth, which he vowed to place in the snow at the top of the mountain. Writing in his diary, which is a first-hand account of the climb, from inside his tent at base camp in the freezing cold, Richard Hingston could feel a sense of foreboding. He felt extremely worried as Mallory and Irvin began to trudge up the shoulder of the mountain and disappear out of his line of sight. It was as if the mountain was alive, groaning beneath their feet. The mountains are continually giving forth sounds. At Camp 2, it was the splitting of the ice. Here, it is the falls and avalanche of rock. Yet a few living creatures ascend even to here. Chuffs and crows look about for scraps. A little black spider lives amongst the stones. Mallory and Irvin left camp today. They intend to make an oxygen attempt. After a day tending to other members of the expedition team, Hingston began to grow increasingly worried about Mallory and Irvin. Hingston had every right to be worried. Both Mallory and Irvin had literally set off into the unknown. They were heading into an area 8,000 metres above sea level, known in mountaineering language as the death zone. At this altitude, there is not enough oxygen to sustain human life. The name is apt, as the human body is literally dying. I mean, like, we call it uh, dangerous if after we cross it 3,000 metres. This is Prakash Shritha, a guide working in the Everest region. According to Prakash, altitude begins to affect the human body from 3,000 metres above sea level. High altitude sickness is probably can hit to anybody, even to the Sherpas and to even to the local people, after you cross 3,000 metres. So you have to be really prepared for these things and like uh, uh, the high altitude sickness that if you, if you have a difficulty in the breathings, you get a weakness. Uh, there are lots of symptoms that we can see in the people for this uh, altitude sickness. Like uh, they start with the vomiting, dizziness, weakness, fatigue and things like that. And the final result will be the death. As minutes turned into hours and hours turned into days, everyone began to grow worried about Mallory and Irvin. 7th of June, 1924, 21,000 feet. There is no news of Mallory and Irvin. Personally, I've not much hope of their success. Neither of them are fit enough for so great an effort unless the oxygen is of greater value than we expect. This will be the last of the attempts. Already arrangements are in hand for the evacuation of the camps. The monsoon will be on us any time. The party is exhausted by fatigue and exposure. Within a week, we should all be off the mountain, and no one will regret it. All have had a grueling this year, and need a rest at lower elevations. Little did Mallory and Irvin know, but combined with the effects of altitude, ahead of them lay some of the most fearsome climbing obstacles on Earth. 
These would pose a serious mountaineering challenge at sea level, never mind in the oxygen-starved death zone of Mount Everest. 9th of June, 1924, 21,000 feet. A most anxious day. Not a sign of Marion Irvin. The condition of the mountain has changed for the worse. For the most of the day, it had been in cloud with every indication of a bitter wind. Everything points to a fatality, which would be a disastrous ending to the affair. We cannot leave here without more definite information as to what has occurred. Donegal man Jason Black has climbed to the summit of Mount Everest, as well as K2 and other 8,000 metre peaks, and took the same route to the Everest summit as Mallory and Irvin did in 1924. It is, it is a serious, serious climb. And now you're still at the very bottom of this mountain. And, um, and then the big boys start to appear, which is you have three pinnacles, uh, first of all, Mushroom Rock. Uh, and then we've got the first step, second step, third step at 8,000 metres. Like, these things are... Like, to climb these things at sea level would be challenging enough, but to do these things at 8,000 metres, you know, first step is a really, really... Um, it's not overly um, high, as in it's a technical climb, it's a sheer rock face... Um, you've got to be able to get up and over it. Um, you know, it's about 30 foot in, in altitude, but it's at, it's at 28,000, I think it's at 28,000, 28 or 29 foot in the air. You know, oxygen levels are really low, air pressure's really difficult. It's cold on my, north, on my right side, as I'm telling you it now, like I'm visualising it in my head, and on my right side I'm looking down and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of foot of a descent, and it's like looking into a black hole, it's like an abyss, you know, and the, the wind is coming up from it. Second step is a serious, serious climb. When I was there, I free-climbed it. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a sheer, it's a sheer rock face. And the fear of God is in your is in your blood. I could taste the blood in my throat, you know, and you know that one shift to your right-hand side, it's all over. A similar sense of dread began to seep into base camp. It was becoming obvious as time went by that something was seriously wrong. And nobody seemed to know had Mallory and Irvin been able to reach the top of the mountain. While Hingston and others at base camp had no idea what had happened to Mallory and Irvin, climbing a few thousand feet below them in support was Noel O'Dell. Odell hadn't seen the men since he took their photograph as they set off on their summit bid. However, all of a sudden, as he reached a height of 26,000 feet, just 3,000 feet from the summit, clouds over the mountain cleared and Odell saw two figures in the distance. In 1924, Noel Odell was one of the best alpine climbers in the world and had reached the summit of many famous European mountains. But perhaps most crucially of all, he was the most acclimatised climber on the whole 1924 expedition. A geologist by trade, he would have no problem spotting a moving figure on the mountain ridge. Speaking in the 1980s, Odell was in no doubt he saw Mallory and Irvin high on the mountain's ridge, a few hundred metres from the summit, and in his own words, going strong for the top. On the day that Mallory and Irvin uh, made their attempt... They went up and pitched their first camp at Camp 5, 25,000 feet. I followed them up independently <clears throat> because there wasn't really room in the small tents we had there. 
And then the day that they went up from Camp 5 to our top bivouac tent at uh, 27,000, which we called Camp 6, that day I went up. On my way up, <clears throat> I saw Mallory and Irvin silhouetted against a snow slope and approaching one of the rock steps in the what we call the northeast ridge that leads up towards the final pyramid. I'm absolutely certain they were climbers. They were moving, actually, moving figures. As it is unknown exactly which route Mallory and Irvin took that day, Noel O'Dell's sighting has been scrutinised over the years. This is his grandson, Peter O'Dell. Yeah, my grandfather's been criticised for um, for getting that, that sort of wrong a little bit and, and, and um, eyesight and, and not being able to acclimatise. But my, my grandfather then, his eyesight would have been pin sharp. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, he saw two figures um, in the sort of clearing of the mist high up on the mountain. Um, but exactly where where that was is a little bit more difficult to ascertain because they were very late um, setting off, they were delayed. It was now June 8th and it had been almost two days since Mallory and Irvin had been spotted on the mountain ridge by Odell. It was clear that things had taken a turn for the worst and something must have happened to the men. Conditions on the mountain were severe and the weather was brutal. In driving snow, mist and bitter wind, Noel Odell, alongside his Sherpa, Nima, searched frantically for his friends. Speaking in the 1980s, Noel O'Dell described his search for Mallory and Irvin. It was blowing very hard and blowing, blowing snow and mist and stuff. Was, visibility was bad, very bad. Anyhow, I got back to Bivouac uh, tent after looking for them above Camp 6, that's above 27,000 feet. I got up, I don't know, I got up somewhere between 27 and 28,000 feet and uh, got back there. I signalled by a very primitive means, by means of sleeping bags placed in a certain position on the nearest patch of snow, which I did, indicating couldn't find them and that we must conclude that they were lost. Eventually, after many hours searching, Odell realised the worst. Mallory and Irvin must have fallen to their deaths. Hingston and his colleagues were distraught, and while some of the expedition members felt the men had failed in their summit bid, Hingston believed Mallory and Irvin made it to the summit, but fell on the way back down. Noel O'Dell also believed Mallory and Irvin reached the summit. Here he is, speaking in the 1980s. I think that uh, when they got to the foot of the final pyramid, it was late. Mallory would say, well, we've got to hurry up here because it's, it's almost approaching dusk. And uh, along we go. I don't think Irvin in any way would have hesitated to go, nor do I think he'd been unfit enough to say, oh, no, I don't think we can manage it. I think he'd been perfectly willing to go on and they might well have got to the top. Hingston was devastated, although he agreed it was best to evacuate the mountain for the safety of the rest of the team. 10th of June, 1924, 21,000 feet. There can be no doubt, the worst has happened. Not a sign of Mallory and Irvin. They must have slipped near the summit or falling down the face of the mountain. 
This is a bad ending and a serious loss to all of the expedition. It is certain to cause talk and criticism, though nobody is in the slightest to blame. Odell, with his porter, is on search all day. He had a grueling time. We received a signal in the evening that all hope was abandoned. Odell searched the mountain, and it would be impossible to remain a night exposed on the mountain and survive. I shall not be sorry to leave the spot. I've now been here for a week at over 22,000 feet. If only we abandoned it under happier conditions. Everest is a most dangerous mountain. In three expeditions, it has claimed 12 victims. It is just possible that Mallory and Irvin may have climbed it. Odell last saw them at about 800 feet from the summit and going strong for the top. We are all heartily sick of the business by now. No one is fit to stay here any longer, much less to make another attempt. Everyone has lost a great deal of weight. We must go down to lower altitudes and recuperate in some green spot. And so, reluctantly, but in fear of the approaching monsoon snowstorms, the evacuation of the mountain began. When the team eventually reached the bottom of the Rongbuk Valley, in which Everest is situated, Hingston and the others solemnly erected a memorial cairn to Mallory and Irvin. 14th of June, 1924. Rongbuk, base camp, 16,500 feet. We are off tomorrow for the Rongshar Valley. I spent the morning collecting our mess stores. The construction of the cairn is going on apace. The cairn will stand on a hillock near the camp in full view of the great mountain. Historian Mick Conifrey says that Odell believed the men bivouacked, that is, to make an improvised shelter on their way back down the mountain after having reached the summit. He thought that he'd, he was the last person to see them. He thought that they'd probably had made the summit and he thought what had probably happened was that on the way down, uh, um, it was so late in the day that rather than coming down, they had uh, basically tried to bivouac for the night and had died of exposure. A memorial service was held in St Paul's Cathedral, London, for Mallory and Irvin, and their summit attempt became mountaineering folklore. However, nobody was sure had Everest actually been conquered yet. There were many subsequent expeditions, but nobody made it as high on the mountain as where Noel O'Dell had last seen Mallory and Irvin. Finally, in 1953, on the morning of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, news began to filter through that a British team had finally and definitively reached the summit of Mount Everest. Everest conquered, the New Zealander Edmund Hillary got his first mail and congratulatory telegrams from George Lowe, a fellow countryman and expedition colleague. Thus, 35 miles from Kathmandu, capital of Nepal, Hillary and Ten Singh were welcomed and congratulated by their fellow members of the expedition. Poor Ten Singh descended from his glory into the centre of a minor political storm. He was born in Nepal and grew up in India, and both nations are now at loggerheads to claim him as their national. However, Ten Singh was unruffled when Colonel Hunt congratulated him and Hillary. Two unassuming men had climbed the 29,000-foot monarch of the Himalayas. Now in the state coach of Nepal, Hillary and Ten Singh, with Colonel Hunt and others of the expedition, rode in triumph through Kathmandu. 
Hunt has modestly declared that his team climbed Everest on the shoulders of all their predecessors. The whole world, however, acclaims the expedition, in particular, Hilary, Tensing and Colonel Hunt. The bodies of Mallory and Irvin were at this point not discovered on Everest. But so few people had been that high on the mountain, it was unclear where they lay. Something Edmund Hillary wondered about as he made the summit. Yes, when, uh, when I reached the summit of Mount Everest and uh, sort of looked round about, and particularly when I looked down uh, towards the North Col, um, Mallory actually was very much in my mind. And although I really had uh, no hope of, of actually seeing any uh, sign of his passing, um, I certainly looked down towards the North Col. I looked sort of over and down the very steep slopes uh, leading from the summit, and, uh, but I, I saw nothing, no sign uh, of Mallory's passing. Well, my name is Peter Hillary. Um, I'm the son of Sir Edmund Hillary, who, along with Tenzing Norgay, made the first ascent of Mount Everest. Oh, my father greatly admired George Mallory. He always told us that, you know, really he was the great mountaineer, Himalayan mountaineer of that, of that era. And, in fact, he wrote about it, um, you know, after Everest, how when they got to the top that he looked around for any evidence that Mallory and Irvine had been up there, maybe an old oxygen cylinder or, or a stake pounded into the summit or some evidence that they'd been there. Um, and he had great admiration for George Mallory. As the years rolled by after the 1924 expedition, the team members all went on to different things. Noel O'Dell went on to set many mountaineering records and became a noted Cambridge professor of geology. And while he changed his opinion on where exactly on the ridge he saw Mallory and Irvin, he believed to his final days that both men made it to the summit. Richard Hingston went on to have a distinguished career as a naturalist and the author of several books on natural history and the Himalayas. His writings on the effects of altitude on human beings were much sought after by subsequent mountaineering expeditions on Everest and beyond. However, when he returned to Cork, he was advised not to discuss his exploits on Everest publicly, lest he draw attention to the fact that he had served in the British Army. With three young children and a wife to look after, Hingston never again spoke publicly about his role on the 1924 expedition. He died in 1966, his great heroics passing out of public knowledge with him. Before I left Passage West, Jim Murphy, Richard Hingston's next-door neighbour, took me to Richard Hingston's final resting place. It's a simple grave considering his great bravery in Everest. memory of Richard W.G. Hingston, Horsehead, Indian Medical Service, died 5th of August 1966. I would have liked to have seen a, a more fitting, or several said, a more, uh, I, I suppose, uh, a more dramatic headstone for the man for what he did and what he achieved. But I suppose with his kind of outlook on life, simple and never, never preached about his, his deeds or anything. Simple life, simple man. His Everest diaries were eventually donated to Trinity College Dublin by his daughter Jill and Jim, who was determined that his old friend should not be forgotten. George Mallory and Andrew Sandy Irvin's bodies lay undiscovered on Everest for the next 75 years. In 1995, George Mallory's grandson climbed to the top of Mount Everest and placed a photograph of both his grandparents on the summit. As he knelt in the snow, a fellow climber remarked to him, your grandfather would be very proud of you. 
Just four years later, in 1999, George Mallory's body was discovered on the slopes of Mount Everest. He had suffered an open wound fracture on his leg and had severe rope jerk injuries, indicating that he and Irvin were roped together when they fell. While his altimeter, which is used to calculate height, reached by a climber and his wristwatch were broken, and crucially the camera he had carried was missing, there was some evidence that he and Irvin had reached the summit and stood on the roof of the world. When George Mallory's body was searched, his snow goggles were in his pocket, indicating he was descending at night. Also, there was no sign of the oxygen sets he and Andrew Irvin had been wearing when Nolo Dell last saw them, indicating that they had been stored further up the mountain. An oxygen cylinder belonging to the men was also found on the ridge where Odell had last spotted them, and indications were the men had enough oxygen left to make a quick summit attempt. But most crucially of all, there was no sign of the photograph of Mallory's wife Ruth, which he had vowed to place on the summit. The discovery of Mallory's remains in 1999 certainly brought strong new evidence into the claim that Mallory and Irvin were the very first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest in 1924. Jason Black, the Donegal man who had climbed Mount Everest along what is now referred to as the Mallory Route, is in little doubt about their accomplishments. I don't think people can really grasp the magnitude of what these guys did, you know, the true pioneers, you know. You know, it's a step into space, you know, in a mountaineering world, you know, this is what they did. They they were the first in the moon, you know, in, in the mountaineering sense. So, you know, while we, you know, while we, while we sadly get caught up in the debate of who was there first, what we're actually missing in, in the in the conversation is that they they were the first because they were the first to step onto the mountain. They were the first to have the courage to go there. They were the first to to uh, to realise that it was possible. It's a point echoed by Sandy Irvin's great niece, Julie Summers. I think what George and Sandy achieved is so astonishing that. It's a record in its, in its own right. You know, they were climbing higher than any man had ever climbed before. As a family, we're hugely proud of this remarkable young man. We can, we can do nothing more than, you know, look at, look at the history books and look at the photographs and remember him as part of the family, but also as a very important historical figure. But I do think... I think Sandy himself would be the first to admit that he stood on Mallory's shoulders. If Andrew Irvin's body is found, along with Mallory's camera, which it is believed he was carrying, it may shed light on if the men were truly the first to climb to the summit of Mount Everest. However, Julie Summers believes Mallory and Irvin should be let rest in peace. My opinion, and I'm going to say it very loudly and strongly, is leave him alone. My grandmother, who absolutely adored him, said, and she was a religious woman, she said, Everest is his grave. I don't really want him found, if I'm absolutely honest, because I think their achievements were extraordinary. The mystery is, as I've said on many occasions, one of the greatest mysteries of all time. It has a real romance to it. Um, And I don't want to see that corpse, thank you very much. And I want to remember him as the young man who my grandmother and so many other people adored and who achieved a great thing with George Mallory. And I'd much rather that was left alone. Peter O'Dell has nothing but admiration for his grandfather, Noel, and his colleagues, Mallory and Irvin. You can't underestimate their achievements um, to do what they did, when they did, with the equipment they'd had. I think it was uh, truly remarkable. Um, 
once something's been done, it's, it's, it's not necessarily easier, but it's um, in some way it enables somebody else to do it a second time um, more easily. Um, so I think there's a natural sort of mystique about it. There's a natural... Um, people are so inquisitive, they want to sort of try and get to the bottom of, of, of this particular mystery. Um, so um, I don't decry people for doing that, but... Uh, you've just got to be full of admiration for what, for what they did achieve. Peter Hillary, son of Sir Edmund Hillary. George Mallory's efforts inspired people like my father in Tenzing, um, some of the other brilliant climbers who've climbed on Everest and other great 8,000-metre peaks, of course, gain confidence um, from the experience and success of Hillary and Tenzing. And so we have a generation of incredible young mountaineers who are doing extraordinary technical routes on very, very high mountains like Mount Everest. And this is extending that realm of possibility that Hillary and Tenzing opened up all those 70 years ago. Whether or not Mallory and Irvin made it to the summit, one thing is certain. They were absolutely fearless on that most desolate and dangerous mountain, walking head-on into history to meet whatever the elements threw at them. And Richard Hingston, that quiet little Irishman, as Mallory described him, remembered them both as he walked the streets of Passage West for the rest of his days. Today, almost 100 years since Mallory and Irvin disappeared into the clouds high on the mountain, opinions still differ about their success, but those closest to the events Eyewitnesses believe they got there first. Richard Hingston believed they made it, and Noel O'Dell believed the two very small men he saw cutting steps into the roof of the world that fateful day in June 1924 went all the way to the top. So who was the first to stand on the summit of Mount Everest? Hillary and Tenzing, or Mallory and Irvin? In the end, only the mountain knows. Mallory's own letters which Noel O'Dell brought back with him in 1924 from the last camp Mallory and Irvin stayed in before their summit attempt, show a man determined to succeed despite all the costs. Written in hurricane winds, suffering from frostbite and exhaustion high in the death zone, George Lee Mallory was resolute that he would be the first to stand upon the roof of the world. It is not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Because it's there. So, if you cannot understand that there is something in man which responds to the challenge of this mountain and goes out to meet it, that the struggle is the struggle of life itself, upward and forever upward, then you won't see why we go. We are going to sail to the top this time, and God with us, or stamp to the top with the wind in our teeth. (laughs) 